Chapter Forty One of Varney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Varney the Vampire, Volume One, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter Forty One. Varney's Danger and His Rescue the prisoner again, and the subterranean vault. We have before slightly mentioned to the reader, and not unadvisedly, the existence of a certain prisoner confined in a gloomy dungeon into whose sad and blackened recesses but few and faint glimmering rays of light ever penetrated. For by a diabolical ingenuity, the narrow loophole which served for a window to that subterraneous abode was so constructed that let the sun be at what point it might during its diurnal course, but a few reflected beams of light could ever find their way into that abode of sorrow. The prisoner, the same prisoner of whom we before spoke, is there. Despair is in his looks, and his temples are still bound with those cloths, which seemed now for many days to have been sopped in blood which has become encrusted in their folds. He still lives, apparently incapable of movement. How he has lived so long seems to be a mystery, for one would think him scarcely in a state, even were his nourishment placed to his lips, to enable him to swallow it. It may be, however, that the mind has as much to do with that apparent absolute prostration of all sort of physical energy as those bodily wounds which he has received at the hands of the enemies who have reduced him to his present painful and hopeless situation. Occasionally a low groan burst from his lips. It seems to come from the very bottom of his heart, and it sounds as if it would carry with it every remnant of vitality that was yet remaining to him. Then he moves restlessly, and repeats in hurried accents the names of some who are dear to him and far away, some who may perchance be mourning him, but who know not, guess not, aught of his present sufferings. As he thus moves, the rustle of a chain among the straw on which he lies gives an indication that even in that dungeon it has not been considered prudent to leave him master of his own actions, lest by too vigorous an effort he might escape from the thraldom in which he is held. The sound reaches his own ears, and for a few moments, in the deep impatience of his wounded spirit, he heaps malediction on the heads of those who have reduced him to his present state. But soon a better nature seems to come over him, and gentler words fall from his lips. He preaches patience to himself. He talks not of revenge, but of justice, and in accents of more hopelessness than he had before spoken, he calls upon heaven to succor him in his deep distress. Then all is still, and the prisoner appears to have resigned himself once more to the calmness of expectation or of despair. But hark, his senses hearing, rendered doubly acute by lying so long alone in nearly darkness and in positive silence, detects sounds which, to ordinary mortal powers of perception, would have been by far too indistinct to produce any tangible effect upon the senses. It is the sound of feet. On, on they come. Far overhead he hears them. They beat the green earth, that sweet, verdant sod 
which he may never see again, with an impatient tread. Nearer and nearer still, and now they pause. He listens with all the intensity of one who listens for existence. Someone comes. There is a lumbering noise, a hasty footstep. He hears someone laboring for breath, panting like a hunted hare. His door is opened, and there totters in a man, tall and gaunt. He reels like one intoxicated. Fatigue has done more than the work of inebriation. He cannot save himself, and he sinks exhausted by the side of that lonely prisoner. The captive raises himself as far as his chains will allow him. He clutches the throat of his enervated visitor. "'Villain! Monster! Vampire!' he shrieks. "'I have thee now!' And locked in a deadly embrace, they roll upon the damp earth, struggling for life together. It is midday at Bannerworth Hall, and Flora is looking from the casement, anxiously expecting the arrival of her brothers. She had seen, from some of the topmost windows of the hall, that the whole neighborhood had been in a state of commotion, but little did she guess the cause of so much tumult, or that it in any way concerned her. She had seen the peasantry forsaking their work in the fields and the gardens, and apparently intent upon some object of absorbing interest, but she feared to leave the house, for she had promised Henry that she would not do so, lest the former pacific conduct of the vampire should have been but a new snare, for the purpose of drawing her so far from her home as to lead her into some danger when she should be far from assistance. And yet more than once she was tempted to forget her promise, and to seek the open country, for fear that those she loved should be encountering some danger for her sake, which she would willingly either share with them or spare them. The solicitation, however, of her brother kept her comparatively quiet, and, moreover, since her last interview with Varney, in which, at all events, he had shown some feeling for the melancholy situation to which he had reduced her, she had been more able to reason calmly and to meet the suggestions of passion and of impulse with a sober judgment. About midday, then, she saw the domestic party returning that party which now consisted of her two brothers, the Admiral, Jack Pringle, and Mr. Chillingworth. As for Mr. Marchdale, he had given them a polite adieu on the confines of the grounds of Bannerworth Hall, stating that although he had felt it to be his duty to come forward and second Henry Bannerworth in the duel with the vampire, yet that circumstance by no means obliterated from his memory the insults he had received from Admiral Bell, and therefore he declined going to Bannerworth Hall, and bade them a very good morning. To all this, Admiral Bell replied that he might go and be damned if he liked, and that he considered him a swab and a humbug, and appealed to Jack Pringle whether he, Jack, ever saw such a sanctified-looking prig in his life. "'Aye, aye,' says Jack. This answer, of course, produced the usual contention, which lasted them until they got fairly in the house, where they swore at each other to an extent that was enough to make anyone's hair stand on end, until Henry and Mr. Chillingworth interfered, and really begged that they would postpone the discussion until some more fitting opportunity. The whole of the circumstances were then related to Flora, who, while she blamed her brother much for fighting the duel with the vampire, found in the conduct of that mysterious individual as regarded the encounter, 
yet another reason for believing him to be strictly sincere in his desire to save her from the consequences of his future visits. Her desire to leave Bannerworth Hall consequently became more and more intense, and as the admiral really now considered himself the master of the house, they offered no amount of opposition to the subject, but merely said, "'My dear Flora, Admiral Bell shall decide all these matters now. We know that he is our sincere friend, and that whatever he says we ought to do will be dictated by the best possible feelings towards us.' "'Then I appeal to you, sir,' said Flora, turning to the admiral. "'Very good,' replied the old man. "'Then I say—' "'Nay, admiral,' interrupted Mr. Chillingworth. You promised me but a short time since that you would come to no decision whatever upon this question until you had heard some particulars which I have to relate to you, which, in my humble opinion, will sway your judgment. And so I did, cried the Admiral, but I had forgotten all about it. Flora, my dear, I'll be with you in an hour or two. My friend, the doctor here, has got some sow by the ear and fancies it's the right one. However, I'll hear what he has got to say first before we come to a conclusion. So come along, Mr. Chillingworth, and let's have it out at once. Flora, said Henry, when the admiral had left the room, I can see that you wish to leave the hall. I do, brother, but not to go far. I wish rather to hide from Varney than to make myself inaccessible by distance. You still cling to this neighborhood? I do, I do, and you know with what hope I cling to it. Perfectly. You still think it possible that Charles Holland may be united to you? I do, I do. You believe his faith? Oh, yes, as I believe in heaven's mercy. And I, Flora, I would not doubt him now for worlds. Something even now seems to whisper to me that a brighter sun of happiness will yet dawn upon us, and that when the mists which at present enshroud ourselves and our fortunes pass away, they will disclose a landscape full of beauty, the future of which shall know no pangs. "'Yes, brother,' exclaimed Flora enthusiastically, "'this, after all, may be but some trial, grievous while it lasts.' but yet tending eventually only to make the future look more bright and beautiful. Heaven may yet have in store for us all some great happiness, which shall spring clearly and decidedly from out these misfortunes. Be it so, and may we ever thus banish despair by such hopeful propositions. Lean on my arm, Flora, you're safe with me. Come, dearest, and taste the sweetness of the morning air. There was, indeed, now a hopefulness about the manner in which Henry Bannerworth spoke, such as Flora had not for some weary months had the pleasure of listening to, and she eagerly rose to accompany him into the garden, which was glowing with all the beauty of sunshine, for the day had turned out to be much finer than the early morning had at all promised it would be. "'Flora,' he said, when they had taken some turns to and fro in the garden, "'notwithstanding all that has happened,' there is no convincing Mr. Chillingworth that Sir Francis Varney is really what to us he appears. Indeed! It is so. In the face of all evidence, he neither will believe in vampires at all, nor that Varney is anything but some mortal man, like ourselves, in his thoughts, talents, feelings, and modes of life, 
and with no more power to do any one an injury than we have. Oh, would that I could think so! And I. But unhappily we have by far too many and too conclusive evidences to the contrary. We have indeed, brother. And though, while we respect the strength of mind in our friend which not allow him, even almost at the last extremity, to yield to what appear to be stern facts, we may not ourselves be so obdurate, but may feel that we know enough to be convinced. You have no doubt, brother? Most reluctantly, I must confess that I feel compelled to consider Varney as something more than mortal. He must be so. And now, sister, before we leave the place which has been a home to us from earliest life, let us for a few moments consider if there be any possible excuse for the notion of Mr. Chillingworth to the effect that Sir Francis Varney wants possession of the house for some purpose more inimical to our peace and prosperity than any he has yet attempted. Has he such an opinion? He has. Tis very strange. Yes, Flora, he seems to gather from all the circumstances nothing but an overwhelming desire on the part of Sir Francis Varney to become the tenant of Bannerworth Hall. He certainly wishes to possess it. Yes, but can you, sister, in the exercise of any possible amount of fancy, imagine any motive for such an anxiety beyond what he alleges? Which in merely that he is fond of old houses. Precisely so. That is the reason and the only one that can be got from him. Heaven only knows if it is the true one. It may be, brother. As you say, it may. But there is a doubt, nevertheless, Flora. I much rejoice that you have had an interview with this mysterious being, for you have certainly, since that time, been happier and more composed than I ever hoped to see you again. I have indeed. It is sufficiently perceivable. Somehow, brother, since that interview, I have not had the same sort of dread of Sir Francis Varney which before made the very sound of his name a note of terror to me. His words, and all he said to me during that interview which took place so strangely between us, indeed I know not, tended together rather to make him, to a certain extent, an object of my sympathies rather than my abhorrence. That is very strange. I own that it is strange, Henry, but when we come for but a brief moment to reflect upon the circumstances which have occurred, we shall, I think, be able to find cause even to pity Varney the vampire. How? Thus, brother, it is said, and well may I who have been subject to an attack of such a nature tremble to repeat the saying, that those who have been once subject to the visitations of a vampire are themselves in a way to become one of the dreadful and maddening fraternity. I have heard so much, sister, replied Henry. Yes, and therefore who knows but that Sir Francis Varney may, at one time, have been as innocent as we are ourselves of the terrible and fiendish propensity which now makes him a terror and a reproach to all who know him, or are in any way obnoxious to his attacks. That is true. There may have been a time, who shall say there was not, when he, like me, would have shrunk with a dread as great as any one could have experienced from the contamination of the touch even of a vampire. 
"'I cannot, sister, deny the soundness of your reasoning,' said Henry, with a sigh. "'But still I do not see anything, even from a full conviction, that Varney is unfortunate, which should induce us to tolerate him.' "'Nay, brother, I said not tolerate. What I mean is that even with the horror and dread we must naturally feel at such a being, we may afford to mingle some amount of pity which shall make us rather seek to shun him than to cross his path with the resolution of doing him an injury. I perceive well, sister, what you mean. Rather than remain here and make an attempt to defy Sir Francis Varney, you would fly from him and leave him undisputed master of the field. I would, I would. Heaven forbid that I or any one would thwart you. You know well, Flora, how dear you are to me. You know well that your happiness has ever been to us all a matter of which has assumed the most important of shapes as regarded our general domestic policy. It is not, therefore, likely now, dear sister, that we should thwart you in your wish to remove from here. I know, Henry, all you would say, remarked Flora as a tear started to her eyes. I know well all you think, and in your love for me, I likewise know well I rely forever. You are attached to this place, as indeed we all are, by a thousand pleasant associations. But listen to me further, Henry, I do not wish to wander far. Not far, Flora? No, do I not still cling to a hope that Charles may yet appear? And if he do so, it will assuredly be in this neighborhood, which he knows is native and most dear to us all. True. Then do I wish to make some sort of parade in the way of publicity of our leaving the hall? Yes, yes. And yet not go far. In the neighboring town, for example, surely we might find some means of living entirely free from remark or observation as to who or what we were. That, sister, I doubt. If you seek for that species of solitude which you contemplate, it is only to be found in a desert. A desert? Yes, or in a large city. Indeed. Aye, Flora, you may well believe me that it is so. In a small community you can have no possible chance of evading an amount of scrutiny which would very soon pierce through any disguise you could by any possibility assume. Then there is no resource. We must go far. Nay, I will consider for you, Flora, and although as a general principle what I have said I know to be true, yet some more special circumstance may arise that may point a course that, while it enables us, for Charles Holland's sake, to remain in this immediate neighborhood, yet will procure to us all the secrecy we may desire. "'Dear, dear brother,' said Flora, as she flung herself upon Henry's neck, "'you speak cheeringly to me, and what is more, you believe in Charles's faithfulness and truth.' "'As heaven is my judge, I do.' "'A thousand, thousand thanks for such an assurance. I know him too well to doubt, for one moment, his faith. Oh, brother, could he, could Charles Holland, the soul of honor, the abode of every noble impulse that can adorn humanity, could he have written those letters? No, no, perish the thought. It has perished. Thank God! 
I only, upon reflection, wonder how, misled for the moment by the concurrence of a number of circumstances, I could ever have suspected him. It is like your generous nature, brother, to say so. But you know as well as I that there has been one here who has, far from feeling any sort of anxiety to think as well as possible of poor Charles Holland, has done all that in him lay to take the worst view of his mysterious disappearance and induce us to do the like. You allude to Mr. Marchdale? I do. Well, Flora, at the same time that I must admit you have cause for speaking of Mr. Marchdale as you do, yet when we come to consider all things, there may be found for him excuses. May there? Yes, Flora, he is a man, as he himself says, past the meridian of life, and the world is a sad as well as a bad teacher, for it soon, too soon, alas, deprives us of our trusting confidence in human nature. It may be so, but yet he, knowing as he did very little of Charles Holland, judged him hastily and harshly. You rather ought to say, Flora, that he did not judge him generously. Well, be it so. And you must recollect, when you say so, that Marchdale did not love Charles Holland. Why now? said Flora, while there flashed across her cheek for a moment a heightened color. You are commencing to jest with me, and therefore we will say no more. You know, dear Henry, all my hopes, my wishes, and my feelings, and I shall therefore leave my future destiny in your hands to dispose of as you please. Look yonder. Where? There. Do you see the Admiral and Mr. Chillingworth walking among the trees? Yes, yes, I do now. How very serious and intent they are upon the subject of their discourse. They seem quite lost to all surrounding objects. I could not have imagined any subject that would so completely have absorbed the attention of Admiral Bell. Mr. Chillingworth had something to relate to him, or to propose, of a nature which, perchance, has had the effect of enchaining all his attention. He called him from the room. Yes, I saw that he did. But see, they come towards us, and now we shall probably hear what is the subject matter of their discourse and consultation. We shall. Admiral Bell had evidently seen Henry and his sister, for now, suddenly, as if not from having for the first moment observed them, and, in consequence, broken off their private discourse, but as if they arrived at some point in it which enabled them to come to a conclusion to be communicative. The admiral came towards the brother and sister. "'Well,' said the bluff old admiral, when they were sufficiently near to exchange words, "'well, Miss Flora, you are looking a thousand times better than you were.' "'I thank you, admiral. I am much better.' "'Oh, to be sure you are, and you will be much better still, and no sort of mistake.' Now, here's the doctor and I have both been agreeing upon what is best for you. Indeed. Yes, to be sure. Have we not, doctor? We have, Admiral. Good. And what now, Miss Flora, do you suppose it is? I really cannot say. Why, it's a change of air, to be sure. You must get away from here as quickly as you can, or there will be no peace for you. Yes. 
added Mr. Chillingworth, advancing, I am quite convinced that change of scene and change of place and habits and people will tend more to your recovery than any other circumstances. In the most ordinary cases of indisposition, we always find that the invalid recovers much sooner away from the scene of his indisposition than by remaining in it, even though its general salubrity be much greater than the place to which he may be removed. Good, said the admiral. Then we are to understand, said Henry with a smile, that we are no longer to be your guests, Admiral Bell? Belay there, cried the admiral. Who told you to understand any such thing, I should like to know? Well, but we shall look upon this house as yours now, and, that being the case, if we remove from it, of course we cease to be your guests any longer. That's all you know about it. Now hark ye. You don't command the fleet, so don't pretend to know what the admiral is going to do. I have made money by knocking about some of the enemies of old England, and that's the most gratifying manner in the world of making money so far as I'm concerned. It is an honorable mode. Of course it is. Well, I'm going to... What the deuce do you call it? What? That's just what I want to know. Oh, I have it now. I am going to what the lawyers call invest it. A prudent step, Admiral, and one which it is to be hoped before now has occurred to you. Perhaps it has, and perhaps it hasn't. However, that's my business and no one else's. I am going to invest my spare cash in taking houses. So as I don't care a straw where the houses may be situated, you can look out for one somewhere that will suit you, and I'll take it. So, after all, you will be my guest there just the same as you are here. Admiral, said Henry, it would be imposing upon a generosity as rare as it is noble were we to allow you to do so much for us as you contemplate. Very good. We cannot. We dare not. But I say you shall. So you have had your say, and I have had mine. After which, if you please, Master Henry Bannerworth, I shall take upon myself to consider the affair as altogether settled. You can commence operations as soon as you like. I know that Miss Flora here, bless her sweet eyes, don't want to stay at Bannerworth Hall any longer than she can help it. Indeed, I was urging upon Henry to remove, said Flora, but yet I cannot help feeling with him, Admiral, that we are imposing upon your goodness. Go on imposing, then. But... Cha! Can't a man be imposed upon if he likes? Damn it, that's a poor privilege for an Englishman to be forced to make a row about. I tell you, I like it. I will be imposed upon, so there's an end of that. And now let's come in and see what Mrs. Bannerworth has got ready for luncheon. It can hardly be supposed that such a popular ferment as had been created in the country town by the singular reports concerning Varney the Vampire should readily and without abundant satisfaction subside. An idea like that which had lent so powerful an impulse to the popular mind was one far easier to set going than to deprecate or extinguish. The very circumstances which had occurred to toil the excited mob in the pursuit of Sir Francis Varney 
were of a nature to increase the popular superstition concerning him and to make him and his acts appear in still more dreadful colors. Mobs do not reason very closely and clearly, but the very fact of the frantic flight of Sir Francis Varney from the projected attack of the infuriated multitude was seized hold of as proof positive of the reality of his vampire-like existence. Then again, had he not disappeared in the most mysterious manner? Had he not sought refuge where no human being would think of seeking refuge, namely, in that old dilapidated ruin, where, when his pursuers were so close upon his track, he had succeeded in eluding their grasp with a facility which looked as if he had vanished into thin air, or as if the very earth had opened to receive him bodily within its cold embraces? It is now to be wondered at that the few who fled so precipitately from the ruin lost nothing of the wonderful story they had to tell in the carrying it from that place to the town. When they reached their neighbors, they not only told what had really occurred, but they added to it all their own surmises and the fanciful creation of all their own fears, so that before midday, and about the time when Henry Bannerworth was conversing so quietly in the gardens of the hall with his beautiful sister, there was an amount of popular ferment in the town of which they had no conception. All business was suspended, and many persons, now that once the idea had been started concerning the possibility that a vampire might have been visiting some of the houses in the place, told how in the dead of the night they had heard strange noises, how children had shrieked from no apparent cause, doors opened and shut without human agency, and windows rattled that never had been known to rattle before. Some, too, went so far as to declare that they had been awakened out of their sleep by noises incidental to an effort made to enter their chambers, and others had seen dusky forms of gigantic proportions outside their windows, tampering with their fastenings, and only disappearing when the light of day mocked all attempts at concealment. These tales flew from mouth to mouth, and all listened to them with such an eager interest that none thought it worth while to challenge their inconsistencies or to express a doubt of their truth, because they had not been mentioned before. The only individual, and he was a remarkably clever man, who made the slightest remark upon the subject of a practical character, hazarded a suggestion that made confusion worse confounded. He knew something of vampires. He had traveled abroad and had heard of them in Germany as well as in the East, and to a crowd of wondering and aghast listeners he said, "'You may depend upon it, my friends. This has been going on for some time. There have been several mysterious and sudden deaths in the town lately.' People have wasted away and died nobody knew how or wherefore. Yes, yes, said everybody. There was Miles, the butcher. You know of how fat was and how fat he wasn't. A general assent was given to the proposition, and then, elevating one arm in an oratical manner, the clever man continued, I have not a doubt that Miles, the butcher, and everyone else who has died suddenly lately have been victims of the vampire. And what's more, they'll all be vampires and come and suck other people's blood till at last the whole town will be a town of vampires. But what's to be done? cried one who trembled so excessively that he could scarcely stand under his apprehension. 
There is but one plan. Sir Francis Varney must be found and put out of the world in such a manner that he can't come back to it again. And all those who are dead that we have any suspicion of should be taken up out of their graves and looked at to see if they're rotting or not. If they are, it's all right. But if they look fresh and much as usual, you may depend they're vampires, and no mistake. This was a terrific suggestion thrown amongst a mob. To have caught Sir Francis Varney and immolated him at the shrine of popular fury, they would not have shrunk from. But a desecration of the graves of those whom they had known in life was a matter which, however much it had to recommend it, even the boldest stood aghast at and felt some qualms of irresolution. There are many ideas, however, which, like the first plunge into a cold bath, are rather uncomfortable for the moment, but which in a little time we become so familiarized with that they become stripped of their disagreeable concomitants and appear quite pleasing and natural. So it was with this notion of exhuming the dead bodies of those townspeople who had recently died from what was called a decay of nature and such other failures of vitality as bore not the tangible name of any understood disease. From mouth to mouth the awful suggestion spread like wildfire until at last it grew into such a shape that it almost seemed to become a duty, at all events, to have up Miles the butcher and see how he looked. There is, too, about human nature, a natural craving curiosity concerning everything connected with the dead. There is not a man of education or of intellectual endowment who would not travel many miles to look upon the exhumation of the remains of someone famous in his time, whether for his vices, his virtues, his knowledge, his talents, or his heroism. And if this feeling exists in the minds of the educated and refined in a sublimated shape which lends to it grace and dignity, we may look for it among the vulgar and the ignorant, taking only a grosser and meaner form in accordance with their habits of thought. The rude materials of which the highest and noblest feelings of educated minds are formed will be found amongst the most groveling and base. And so this vulgar curiosity, which combined with other feelings, prompted an ignorant and illiterate mob to exhume Miles, the once fat butcher, in a different form tempted the philosophic Hamlet to moralize upon the skull of Yorick. And it was wonderful to see how, when these people had made up their minds to carry out the singularly interesting but at the same time fearful suggestion, they assumed to themselves a great virtue in so doing, told each other what an absolute necessity there was for the public good that it should be done, and then with loud shouts and cries concerning the vampire, they proceeded in a body to the village churchyard where had been lain, with the hope of reposing in peace, the bones of their ancestors. A species of savage ferocity now appeared to have seized upon the crowd, and the people, in making up their minds to do something which was strikingly at variance with all their preconceived notions of right and wrong, appeared to feel that it was necessary, in order that they might be consistent, to cast off many of the decencies of life, and to become riotous and reckless. As they proceeded toward the graveyard, they amused themselves by breaking the windows of the tax-gatherers 
and doing what passing mischief they could to the inhabitants of all who held any official situation or authority. This was something like a proclamation of war against those who might think it their duty to interfere with the lawless proceedings of an ignorant multitude. A public house or two, likewise en route, was sacked of some of its inebriating contents, so that what with the madness of intoxication and the general excitement consequent upon the very nature of the business which took them to the churchyard, a more wild and infuriated multitude than that which paused at two iron gates which led into the sanctuary of that church could not be imagined. Those who have never seen a mob placed in such a situation as to have cast off all moral restraint whatever, at the same time that it finds there is no physical power to cope with it, can form no notion of the mass of terrible passions which lie slumbering under what, in ordinary cases, have appeared harmless bosoms, but which now run riot and overcame every principle of restraint. It is a melancholy fact, but nevertheless a fact despite its melancholy, that even in a civilized country like this, with a generally well-educated population, nothing but a well-organized physical force keeps down, from the commission of the most outrageous offenses, hundreds and thousands of persons. We have said that the mob paused at the iron gates of the churchyard, but it was more a pause of surprise than one of vacillation, because they saw that those iron gates were closed, which had not been the case within the memory of the oldest among them. At the first building of the church, and the enclosure of its graveyard, two pairs of these massive gates had been presented by some munificent patron, but after a time they hung idly upon their hinges, ornamental certainly, but useless, while a couple of turnstiles, to keep cattle from straying within its sacred precincts, did duty instead, and established without trouble the regular thoroughfare which long habit had dictated as necessary through the place of sepulture. But now those gates were closed, and for once were doing duty. Heaven only knows how they had been moved upon their rusty and time-worn hinges. The mob, however, was checked for the moment, and it was clear that the ecclesiastical authorities were resolved to attempt something to prevent the desecration of the tombs. Those gates were sufficiently strong to resist the first vigorous shake which was given to them by some of the foremost among the crowd, and then one fellow started the idea that they might be opened from the inside, and volunteered to clamber over the wall to do so. Hoisted up upon the shoulders of several, he grasped the top of the wall and raised his head above its level, and then something of a mysterious nature rose up from the inside and dealt him such a whack between the eyes that down he went sprawling among his coadjutors. Now nobody had seen how this injury had been inflicted, and the policy of those in the garrison should have been certainly to keep up the mystery and leave the invaders in ignorance of what sort of person it was that had so foiled them. Man, however, is prone to indulge in vain glorification, and the secret was exploded by the triumphant waving of the long staff of the beetle, with the gilt knob at the end of it, just over the paperet of the wall, in token of victory. "'It's Waggles! It's Waggles!' cried everybody. "'It's Waggles, the beetle!' 
"'Yes,' said a voice from within. "'It's Waggles, the beetle, and he thinks as he had you're there, rather. Try it again. The church isn't in danger. Oh, no. What do you think of this?' The staff was flourished more vigorously than ever, and in the secure position that Waggles occupied it seemed not only impossible to attack him, but that he possessed wonderful powers of resistance, for the staff was long and the knob was heavy. It was a boy who hit upon the ingenious expedient of throwing up a great stone so that it fell just inside the wall and hit Waggles a great blow on the head. The staff was flourished more vigorously than ever, and the mob, in the ecstasy at the fun which was going on, almost forgot the errand which had brought them. Perhaps, after all the affair might have passed off jestingly, had not there been some really mischievous persons among the throng who were determined that such should not be the case, and they incited the multitude to commence an attack upon the gates, which in a few moments must have produced the entire demolition. Suddenly, however, the boldest drew back, and there was a pause, as the well-known form of the clergyman appeared advancing from the church door, attired in full canonicals. "'There's Mr. Lee,' said several. "'How unlucky he should be here!' "'What is this?' said the clergyman, approaching the gates. "'Can I believe my eyes when I see before me those who compose the worshippers at this church armed?' and attempting to enter for the purpose of violence to this sacred place? Oh, let me beseech you, lose not a moment, but return to your homes and repent of that which you have already done. It is not yet too late. Listen, I pray you, to the voice of one with whom you have so often joined in prayer to the throne of the Almighty, who is now looking upon your actions. This appeal was heard respectfully, but it was evidently very far from suiting the feelings and the wishes of those to whom it was addressed. The presence of the clergyman was evidently an unexpected circumstance, and the more especially, too, as he appeared in that costume which they had been accustomed to regard with a reverence almost amounting to veneration. He saw the favorable effect he had produced, and anxious to follow it up, he added, let this little ebullition of feeling pass away, my friends, and believe me when I assure you upon my sacred word that whatever ground there may be for complaint or subject for inquiry shall be fully and fairly met, and that the greatest exertions shall be made to restore peace and tranquility to all of you. It's all about the vampire, cried one fellow. Mr. Lee, how should you like a vampire in the pulpit? "'Hush! Hush! Can it be possible that you know so little of the works of that great being whom you all pretend to adore as to believe that he would create any class of beings of a nature such as those you ascribe to that terrific word? Oh, let me pray of you to get rid of these superstitions, alike disgraceful to yourselves and afflicting to me.' The clergyman had the satisfaction of seeing the crowd rapidly thinning from before the gates and he believed his exhortations were having all the effect he wished. It was not until he heard a loud shout behind him, and upon hastily turning, saw that the churchyard had been scaled at another place by some fifty or sixty persons, that his heart sank within him, and he began to feel that what he had dreaded would surely come to pass. 
even when he might have done something in the way of pacific exertion, but for the interference of Waggles, the beetle, who spoilt everything. End of chapter 41 Recording by Roger Moline